Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Let me just pray for us once more before we dive into um, our text today. Lord Jesus, we again uh, thank you. Um, We pray that our prayers in this gathered body, um, though they are many um, at different times and different ways that we view them as far more than a transition, but actually an appeal um, to the God who is powerful and wise and who wants our hearts to be struck by something powerful so that our lives can be changed to live for your glory and to understand your wisdom. And so Jesus, we pray for your word today um, to do just what was prayed, that it would penetrate our hearts. But most importantly, Lord Jesus, that we would see eye, have eyes to see the beauty of you as our king. We pray all this in your name, amen. So we are continuing our study through the book of Proverbs. You can open up your Bibles if you haven't already um, to chapter 16. And we are slowing down a bit in Proverbs chapter 16 because this is a chapter that is really important for the whole book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's kind of what a proverb is. It's a literary unit that transmits a sense of wisdom by comparison or contrast. It wants to make us wise on how to act, on how to live, on how to love, how to raise a family, how to view relationships, how to steward our finances, how to solve disputes, how to work in the workplace, and so many, many things. But the center of Proverbs is actually not just that wisdom works. In other words, while Proverbs is a deeply practical book, it is not merely a book on pragmatism. It does more than simply telling us wisdom works. In fact, what Solomon is doing is he's explaining to us why wisdom works. And this is really important because there might be times in your life where in living out what you think is biblical wisdom, it doesn't seem to work. In fact, there are promises in Proverbs, which we just looked at a couple weeks ago, that says that it's upon the death of the righteous that you will be vindicated or rewarded. There's other times where we act in wisdom according to God's standards, and it might be for a moment or even for a season longer than you thought, you might be perceived to be foolish, silly, and pitied by the world's standards. But this is why Solomon wants to enter into our experience where we are prone to be disheartened and discouraged in wisdom to show us why wisdom works and why we can constantly go to God for wisdom. Wisdom works because God is sovereign. Wisdom works because God uses his will to control and accomplish everything in this world for his glory and for our good, even when it seems confusing or befuddling to us in the moment. In fact, it is so essential that to strip God of his sovereignty is not only to strip from him his very essence, he is a God who is wonderful because he is a God who is powerful. 
But to strip sovereignty from God actually strips away the reward of wisdom in this world. To strip away sovereignty is to have no assurance that wisdom works. And this is why Proverbs 16 is such an important chapter. Because it actually pulls together two things that we often tend to hold apart. And that is our heart and our affections and God's sovereign power. It marries the two together. And when we live in a season where wisdom doesn't work or seems to not work, Solomon wants to give us eyes to see the God who always does and where we stand in relationship to him. Last week, Johnny introduced us to the beginning of Proverbs 16, and in that we saw the attributes of God's sovereignty and where it shows up in life. But today, as Solomon continues, we're going to see the character of the sovereign God. We're not so much going to see his power, we're going to see the nature of the one who has the power. And Solomon's going to do this masterfully by talking about kings, and most importantly, God as the king par excellence, the ultimate king. He's going to touch briefly on the nature of human king. We're going to pull some application out of that for ourselves and for politics. If you want like the joke of don't talk about religion and don't talk about politics, today you get both. So we're, we're here for this. But what we're going to see um, is that he's going to talk about kings, but at the end he's going to want us to see ultimately our response to God as king. And so our main point today kind of picks up on that. It says this, this is what we're going to see, is that God is the all-powerful king who defends what is good and makes a way for those who are not. God is the all-powerful king who defends what is good and makes a way for those who are not. We're going to see this from two perspectives today. In Proverbs 16, verses 10 through 12, we're going to see the king and his rule. And we're going to look at the nature of God's character as it relates to his kingdom. And then we're going to switch, and in verses 13 through 15, we actually see our response and experience with this ruler. And so that's where we're going to look at the king and his relationships. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to reread our text today that was just read for us, and maybe you could see these two perspectives, and then we're going to dive in. So this is Proverbs 16, verse 10. An oracle is on the lips of a king, and his mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, For the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. So the first thing we see here in verses 10 through 12 is the king and his rule. And if you're looking at those verses, there's a number of things which Solomon says should characterize a king's rule and should be the common denominator of anyone who's in a position of leadership. He says first, he says Solomon, or Solomon says that an oracle is on the lips of a king. Now, what does that mean, an oracle? Well, translators wrestle to kind of express the full sense of what is meant by this word. But what is being spoken of by an oracle is generally something in the Old Testament that is given from God to humans. 
So it is a sense of authority that starts with God that is to be communicated through the mouthpiece of a man. Other translators, depending on what you guys have open in front of you, express it as a divine decision. So what is the point? In other words, Solomon is putting all kings, all rulers, all leaders, everywhere on notice that their words and their effective rule are subjected to God himself. That all the authority that exists is authority that exists as it proceeds and is delegated by God himself. There is a sense of righteous agreement between those who are in positions of authority and the God who is the authority. Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 13 in verses 1 through the first part of 3. He says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And so Paul's point hundreds of years later in the New Testament, begins and ends in a similar place that Solomon's begins and ends. Paul, writing in the context of his own corrupt Roman government, a government that will go on to ultimately try and kill him, reminds both Rome and his readers that rulers are appointed by God and they ought to. They have a divine obligation where to stray from that will be to one day incur your own judgment to protect what is good and to punish what is bad. And Solomon brings that same weight here in Proverbs chapter 16. He says, because there is an agreement, because there is an oracle, an authority borrowed from God himself, you, dear king, who is reading this proverb, do not sin in your judgment. In other words, if you've been appointed by God, you play by God's rules. You do not get to say what you want to say or twist justice or rules or policy for your own pleasure, for your own pocket, for your own comfort, or for your own plan. As a king, he continues to say in verses 11 through 12, you better make sure that your work is the work of justice and equity. You ought to make sure that transactions in the public space are to be done in a way that is righteous and pure and upright. It is your work, says Solomon, to make sure that rights are rewarded and wrongs are punished. And because of this, this is what we see in verse 12, because the king is so concerned about what is just and righteous, he is also a king who finds evil as an abomination and a threat to the kingdom. Deceit, depravity, violence, and oppression are a threat to the very nature of the kingdom itself. And a good king realizes that his rule is established by righteousness. And that he will go through great lengths to defend that rule and keep that peace. Now here we also see, just by way of application, the stunning power and practicality of God's word. Here we have Proverbs. It's a book that speaks most commonly 
to the simple man, to the humble man, to the oppressed, to the afflicted, to the poor. And here in this same book, God is counseling kings. Our world is segregated. There are restaurants for the well-off and there are restaurants for those who have less. There are neighborhoods for the wealthy and neighborhoods for those who don't have wealth. There are specialized counselors for the rich and emotionally burdened. And there are court-appointed therapists for the poor and disheartened. But here in Proverbs is wisdom for all. Wisdom that stretches to every corner of your experience and says, this is for you. If you've ever wondered if your age or your position or your wealth or your influence has caused you to move past the need for God's word, here we see kings submitting to it. Here we see God saying to those who by cultural standards have the most power, authority, and control to say, I am God and you are not. And it is in your interest in the interest of those who are under you, to align your rule with my rule. How sovereign is God? He is sovereign enough not only to control the hearts of kings with his hand, but he is bold enough, righteous enough, and powerful enough to straight up tell them how they ought to rule. It's one thing to control and manipulate from a position of like hiding behind the scenes for fear of being caught. God doesn't need that. God says, you, this is how you ought to lead. This is how you ought to live. This is what you ought to establish. And because of that, and there is a sense where Solomon is talking to kings, kings just like himself, where we ought to consider how Christians should engage in politics as politicians. And I mean this in speaking to those who are in positions where they have leadership, they have rules similar to a king. We'll actually talk a little bit later on in verse 13 about what it means to be a Christian constituent, how you ought to relate to those who are in leadership. But here, we want to see how those who have authority are to act in a way that pleases God. They are to act not according to mere pragmatism, not according to approval polls, not according to retweet affirmations or clickbait headlines, but Proverbs 16 verse 12 says they are to act and establish their rule under the influence of righteousness. This righteousness is not something we get to make up. We've seen this so much in the book of Proverbs. This righteousness is righteousness based off the God who is righteous. Politics today I don't know if you've noticed, it's a messy place. It's a hard place. It's a heated place. It's a difficult place. And yet it is a place where God calls faithful Christians to also pursue influence and position as God would have it. And the truth is there are many political views which the Bible outlines like the sanctity of life or the image of God as universal to all humanity or God's creative authority over our gender or sexuality, which can place leading believers against the swell of cultural consensus. But this is where God calls you who are in authority as a Christian 
to trust not only that wisdom works in a sphere where it might seem your wisdom has zero weight, but to trust that God as king is always working. That righteousness as revealed to us in scripture is what's best for humanity. And that it is okay, in fact it is encouraged to be wrong and winsome in the eyes of culture if you are right and faithful in the eyes of the Lord. Politics is a wonderfully difficult place for anyone who has fear of man. But it is a place where those who rightly fear God can actually choose to stand up for what is right knowing they have the consensus of God on their side. This is what led men like William Wilberforce in the late 19th century to stand up for the slave tra- against the slave trade in England. For 42 years, he lobbied against this until it was finally abolished. But for Wilberforce, he stood up to this movement, even though abolitionist movement was gaining popularity, it was not mainstream. He stood up to a multi-million dollar industry and faced death threats for his abolitionist call, not because it was pragmatic, not because it was popular, but because he recognized that this was a fight for righteousness. He said regarding slavery that it is that which industriously and preservingly depraves and darkens the creature's of God. Historians actually praise Wilberforce through 21st century eyes of abolishing the slave trade, but they actually find him to be a fallen leader because he was also against prostitution and drunkenness and divorce, and it didn't make sense for them, but it makes sense when you realize his motivation was not political affirmation, but God's righteousness pursued in public. The rule of human governors is meant to be a witness to the wisdom principles that God has woven into our creation in order to protect what is good and to punish what is dangerous. Solomon himself, the author of this proverb, is not above this call. This is what he was tasked to do. He was tasked to defend the kingdom from unrighteousness, not only for his sake, but also for the sake of the well-being of his people. In fact, those of you who've been reading our Bible reading plan, you've noticed um, when we're reading through First and Second Kings that the experience of the people is tied up in the quality of the king. If the king is a good king pursuing righteousness, keeping clear of evil and idolatry, the people thrived. But if the king let unrighteousness into the kingdom and chose to do evil, the people suffered. The king's problem was the people's problem. If the king allowed evil and unrighteousness into the kingdom, the entire kingdom would fall. This was illustrated kind of before our eyes in the threat of COVID-19 last year where we saw uh, nations shutting down their borders. Their elected officials realized that if COVID-19 got into their land, that it would be a threat to health or liberty. And so in order to protect that, they just said, we're gonna keep those who do not belong on the outside so as to keep pure that which is on the inside. But on a spiritual level, even Solomon, who is the wisest of all Israel's kings, Solomon was not able to keep his borders safe. 
Solomon himself fell away into sin and embraced evil and unrighteousness. And after Solomon, the people suffered. The kingdom was split in two by a civil war. Unrighteousness and corruption was wholesale throughout the entire people group. Prophets came and they called the people to repentance and they called the kings to repentance and they called the false prophets to repentance, but no one listened until ultimately God judged the entire nation by sending them away into exile for their sin. Not even Solomon was a good enough king or a strong enough hope to protect the kingdom. But exile and judgment is not the end of God's story in the Old Testament. God is going to bring his people back. And what's interesting, it's not even going to be through an Israelite king. It's going to be through kings of other nations. Because God was always the king who was going to bring his people back. You see, you read literature, you look at history, political hope is a constant regardless of where you are. Why is that? It's because you were made with a political hope. You were made by a king and have a desire in your heart to be cared for, ruled by a king who defends what is good and punishes what is wrong so that we can truly flourish. And all authority that God puts in place is a shadow of the substance of which he and he alone is capable to do. But so often, we let the, sub, the shadow drive our hope and we put our hopes and we put our ultimate longings and we put our ultimate worship and peace and security in these shadows. All the while, God is saying, I am the true king. I am the king who rules par excellence. I am the king who upholds justice. This is what Solomon is doing. If you notice chapter, er, in uh, verse 10, he talks about the kingship. In verse 12, he talks about the kingship. But in verse 11, what does he talk about? A just scale and balances are the Lord's. He is showing us that all kingship, all rule, all authority is meant to lead us to the God who embodies all of that without corruption, without deceit, and in all of the perfect rules that we ever need. You see, we live in a society where justice reform is on the forefront of our minds and of our political conversations. And we have a wonderful justice system that was set up wisely and set up well. And yet, we see that corruption exists, that deceit is still present, that there are innocent people wrongly imprisoned and guilty people wrongly walking free. But this king, this king of kings will one day uphold justice in such a way where there is no injustice to be found in his kingdom because he has sought out that which is unrighteous, that which is abominable, that which is wicked and dangerous, and he has removed it from the public well-being so that those who live in his kingdom are safe, secure, and satisfied. How many of you... Remember the Grey Poupon commercials where you see the, the rich, elegant person smattering his baguette with his Grey Poupon 
And the consensus is, if the rich are satisfied with Grey Poupon, you should get it too. Pardon me, sir, do you have any Grey Poupon? That's the most I've said Grey Poupon in my life. But the point is, if it satisfies them, it's going to satisfy you. This is a hope you should have. Do you know that the Bible gives us a similar allegory? The Bible gives us the hope of kings. And if a king is satisfied in this way, how much more do you think we would be satisfied in this way? And look at what David the strongest, mightiest king of Israel says about his hope in Psalm 21, verses one and seven. David the king says this, O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. In your salvation, how he greatly exalts. Verse seven, for the king trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the most high, he shall not be moved. Kings, the best of earthly kings, the most righteous of human rulers, ultimately place their trust in the king who rules all things. And do you realize Solomon wants you to have that same hope? Solomon, you wants to engage in right priority in all of the spheres of influence God has given you without losing the king who is unlosable and unshakable. This is the king who won't be bamboozled, the king who won't make a mistake that harms his people, a king who establishes his throne enduringly through righteousness. This story of a king is the story of the Old Testament. The narrative of the Old Testament is starting in Genesis chapter one is that we were made to be ruled and to live with this kind of perfect king. But the problem is that sinners rejected that. We said no and chose other shadows. But the story of the Old Testament is that God is increasingly beginning to reestablish his kingdom. And in the New Testament, we see that it's through Jesus Christ, God's own son, that he is going to reinvite and reestablish that rule. And it, it's in that hope of that future king that our longing in relationships moves to the forefront in the last part of our proverb today. Read with me Proverbs 16, verses 13 through 15. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face, there is life and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. So where the first half stresses the king's relationship to justice, the second half stresses the king's relationship to his people and his people's relationship to the king. And if a king like this, a king par excellence, a king who can do no wrong and only protects what is good exists, then wouldn't we want to be part of his kingdom? Don't we actually owe an obligation to that kingdom? You see, when we who live in a democratic republic encounter texts on kingship, our experience is slightly skewed because our political system works differently. We can actually go to our elected officials with constitutional authority and say, you work for me. But that's not how kingship works. If a king like this does exist, you actually have an immense privilege and a biblical obligation to go to him in submission to say, we work for you. 
You are the king and we labor for you. And when you look back in ancient fairy tales and Disney stories and and literature from ages gone by, if you notice their hope is always tied up in the promise of a good king, a king with character who protects what is good and punishes what is wrong for the security and flourishing of the kingdom. And here in Proverbs chapter 16, Solomon gives us a way in which we can know and experience a king like this. He tells us how we are to respond to a God who is king. First, we see in verse 13, the promise of finding his affection. So there's three things we see in here. The first is finding his affection. Look again with me at Proverbs 16, 13. Righteous lips are the delight of a king. And he loves him who speaks what is right. How is it you can please a king? How is it that you can be loved by a king who is so lovely? Have righteous lips and speak the truth. God, as the true and just king, is not interested in lip service. He won't be bamboozled or deceived by, I think I've used bamboozled twice in this sermon so far, so words just setting records all over the place. He's not deceived by it. He's not confused by it. How many of us talk to the king of kings and the Lord of lords and present to him a reality about our own heart and about our own circumstances because we think that's what we think he wants to hear? We try to soothe, say, God to thinking that we are servants doing what is good and right and everything is peachy. But we are talking to a God who does not rule by an itchy ear. We are talking to a God who through the power of the Holy Spirit knows all things, even your heart. And we could apply this text in two directions. The first is by honestly asking ourselves how we present ourselves to God. For Solomon, what we've seen so far in Proverbs, the lips are more than just the words we say. Our our lips are a mouthpiece of our heart. It establishes and points to the whole of our hopes. And if you think that empty worship and mouthed confession wins you favor with God, then what your heart actually believes is that this king is able to be duped like any other king. That this king is limited in his perception like any other king. That this king has the same faults of not being able to see what is righteous like any other king. But this king sees and calls for you to come with the true experience of your reality and to speak to him with righteous lips and a true heart. But secondly, we can apply this text to how we live as constituents in our own society. That's how we live as those who are not in place of political rule, but we have influence by being part of a a politic, part of a people. We can't exhaustively and perfectly know every side or every position that is best for society. God has, in his wisdom, chosen to withhold from us omniscience. We don't know everything which means that we are immediately, when it comes to speaking in public, we are immediately robbed of a false sense of arrogance or hostility. But we can, 
by the help of the Holy Spirit and by the aid of God's word, get a sense of how God's righteousness, which is not our own rightness, but God's righteousness should shape our voice in the public square. And in those places where that is opposed by general consensus, when we speak up for things that God is for and sees as righteous, but the world wants to cherish or say, uh, the world cherishes, what am I saying here? Where we say something is righteous and the world sees it as unrighteous or where we call something as unrighteous and the world says this is our hope, we face again this conflict. And yet here we see that favor and delight is for the one who speaks what is righteous and true, which means when we stand in bold places where we are criticized because of Christ's righteousness, again, not our rightness, We know we have the favor of God. We have his delight. We have his love, even when it seems we are unloved by the world. And this next relationship Solomon pulls out is key to see because it actually seems like it stands in contrast to what he talks about, about experiencing the delight and love of a king. This is where we see the next relational possibility And that's the possibility of avoiding his wrath, avoiding the king's wrath. Look at chapter 16, verse 14. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. Now this is where, you know, common wisdom, human wisdom and common human kings uh, go together with General human common sense, we can perhaps appease general human common kings. How many of us have read books or seen movies where the king is kind of this quick-tempered, dull-witted buffoon who's easily, like, riled up? And then what it takes is this king who's all up on a whim, and he's going to go and do something drastic. He has these trusted advisors who say, cool your jets, Turbo. This isn't for the good of anyone. And that's a picture of unjust wrath being appeased in a right way. The wrath was not legitimate, but the wisdom was, and it appeased the wrath. But then we also see times where there is a good king who is rightly enraged at wrongdoing in his kingdom. And yet this king encounters a twisted or deceitful counselor who, here it comes, bamboozles, who deceives, who dissuades and distracts the wrath so that the evil can continue. And here we see just wrath met by false appeasement. In other words, our own wisdom might work to deliver us from the wrath of our own kings. We can have common sense, talk down foolish kings, and we can have sinful deceit, save us from just punishment. But one day, we will stand before the king of kings, and his wrath will not be foolish or short-sighted, and his judgment will not be manipulated or deceived. And here Solomon says that when you stand before this king, the wise man will appease his wrath. How? 
He doesn't actually tell us, which is odd for a practical book like Proverbs. But looking at scripture and looking at what Solomon talks about broadly, we can assume two things. First, if you want to avoid the wrath of the king, turn away from wickedness and don't do something that draws his wrath. Look back at how Paul finishes his text after he says that rulers are placed in authority by God. Look at what he continues, the application to you as the constituent. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. How do you avoid the wrath of the king? Don't break the laws of the land. It's simple. How do you not get anxiety when a cop's behind you? You don't floor it. You use your blinker. You try not to break the laws. A wise man realizes that he ought to live innocently before a king so that he avoids the wrath, which is the downfall of those who do evil. Even living in God's kingdom, we realize what we've seen all throughout Proverbs, that we should turn from what is evil and cling to what is good. And yet, as simple as this sounds, it is incredibly difficult and in one sense, insufficient. It is difficult because even for genuine believers who are converted by the power of the Holy Spirit, turning from sin is a difficult task. It requires saying no with effort. It is easy to say no to a kale salad with a balsamic vinaigrette. It is hard for me to say no to buffalo chicken wings. Saying sin is saying no to what looks satisfying. It is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit with the help of the church to say no, but it is difficult. But, and this is the second issue, even if you say no to future sins, it is insignificant to deal with past sins. To have sinned once, to have not given worship and adoration to a king like this, is to have broken the law of worship. It is to have committed cosmic rebellion. Where we have broken the law of the king is then to introduce the disease of wickedness into the kingdom that flourishes on righteousness. If any father is a good father, he ought to find that which is dangerous and poses a threat to his family and to put it out of his house. If any king is a good king, He must find those who threaten his kingdom and remove them with force from it for the good of his people. And this is what God's wrath does. Do you realize that God is not threatened by sin? God is no more threatened by sin than I am threatened by my one and a half year old in a wrestling match. Sin doesn't pose a threat to God. Sin poses a threat to you and to others. And because God is a just, loving, and pure God, he will punish sin. He will be rightly enraged at that which harms him and his family. He will remove it from his kingdom for the good of his kingdom. 
But just as common wisdom can appease the common king, here we see we need divine wisdom to solve this problem. Because the king is so pure, and we are not, we can't rely on human wisdom to get out of this mess. We can't work our way out of it, because working forward doesn't deal with works done in the past. And we can't lie our way out of it, because this is the king who owns all the bags of justice. But God provides a way. The king who defends what is good makes a way for those who are not. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, a wise man turns away from the wrath of the king by turning to the wise man, Jesus Christ, who took the wrath of the king. Jesus is the wise man of God who appeases the wrath, not by deceiving God, not by a magic trick of, you thought it was them, it's me. Not by saying sin isn't a big deal, but by showing sin is precisely a big deal, a big enough deal to die for. But instead, he willingly and joyfully in union with the Father and Spirit came to live in this world and be wise and wise only, but then to die for those who are unrighteous, to take the wrath that you worked hard to earn yourself. We need wisdom to get out of the mess our sin has placed us in and you cannot be wise enough to fix it. But you can be wise enough to turn to the one who is. And maybe when it comes to lips before this king, you wrestle with righteous lips and with honest articulation before God because you realize that if God knew what was in your heart, there would be no place for you in this kingdom. But this is where the wise man and the righteous lips are married together. Because to approach the Father through the work of the Son is to have his wrath appeased and to be brought into his loving delight. The first step of righteous lips is not boasting in what you have done that is righteous, but by boasting in the righteous Son who has done everything for you. Paul says this in Romans 10 verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Have you put on these righteous lips by having this wise man when you favor with the king? If you haven't today, if your discussion with God, if your perception of reality is distorted from what scripture says, there's a way to make it right and it's not your own works and it's not church attendance, it is Jesus Christ. You see, all of our hopes are political, but it's Jesus Christ, the true king who came to die for sinners to establish the glorious kingdom that we are finally brought into the kingdom we are made to enjoy and promise that one day that kingdom will not be distant but it will be here, eternal, and it will be our pervasive reality. And the result of this wisdom is not only that God's wrath is satisfied, that means it's not only a transaction 
that happens once outside of you. How many of us think that's what conversion is? We get our badge, get our stamp, we get our debt paid, and we move on as if nothing's different. But when Jesus pays for our debt, he wins us back into the favor of a king. And being in the favor of this king changes everything about how we live. And this is our last point today where Solomon offers the possibility of experiencing his joy. The last place we see the relationship of the king is a call to experience his joy. We read this in Proverbs 16, verse 15. In the light of a king's face, there is life. And his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. The king who is the just king, the good king, is good and justly angry with those who sin. But when the wise man, Jesus Christ, takes away that wrath, God's face, his disposition towards you is not merely neutral. We get neutrality. It makes sense. The gospel's better than neutrality. How many of you have encountered a transformative smile? How many of you have been saved by a smile? Perhaps it's the smile from your spouse when you're about to do something dumb in public and she gives you one of those like, no. How many of you have been struck by a smile from your loved one? from the baby you've been making crazy faces at, trying to elicit a smile, and the smile happens and everything stops. This is what's happening on a cosmic level in Proverbs 16, 15. When it says, in the light of the king's face, the word there is in the lightning, not lightning, but in the light, becoming bright. The smile of God's countenance. If you've ever wondered how God feels of broken, bloodied, sinful, unrighteous, abominable, evil sinners who come to him through the cleansing work of the wise man, Jesus Christ, here's your answer. He's beaming. He is smiling at you. Because what you have been robed with is no longer the offensive weight which incites God's wrath. What you have been robed in is the righteousness of his only son, his eternally begotten spotless lamb to when he looks at you, he cannot help but smile as the bride coming down the aisle of the wedding incites the smile of the groom. So does the saved sinner incite the smile of God through Jesus Christ. And more than this, more than than this existential reality of the grin of God, God actually says that recognizing your confidence before this king is provision for your life. Did you see that? It says here that the smile of the king, the favor of the king is like clouds that bring the spring rain. When you are in seasons of dryness, in walking out wisdom in times where it doesn't seem to work. When you are in the season of the desert of wondering if God is pleased with you. When you look at what Christ has done and you gaze through that lens at the smiling providence of God. 
you have the promise that this sovereign king is still working even when it seems nothing else is. You have the smile of God because of the work of his son. Now for many of us, we could read definitions and descriptions of kings and kingdoms and we can think that we know him adequately enough to make a decision. We've examined God as king. We've done what C.S. Lewis calls, we put God on the dock and we examine him and we say, we understand his kingship, we understand perhaps the obligation, but we find him not compelling. That you could say all these things about this God, but I've seen rulers, I've seen kings, I've seen sovereigns, I've seen politicians, I've seen lovers, and none of them have perfect, protected the kingdom of my hopes. Maybe at this point you still find Christ as king lackluster, but here's the reality. To truly experience the warmth of Proverbs 16, 15, you must experience the smile of God through Jesus Christ. In other words, this kingdom cannot be appreciated from the outside. It must be felt on the inside, and that is what Christ calls us to. Many of us think of God as king, in the same way C.S. Lewis portrays the kingly line of Tisrock in his book, The Horse and His Boy in the Narnia series. Tisrock was an ancient ruler and he demanded adoration, yet his rule didn't incite adoration. And so what happened is any time any of the subjects of the kingdom mentioned Tisrock, they had to stop and mention and add, as if under duress and under their breath, Tisrock, may he live forever. And if you've read the book, it's almost comical how Lewis just interrupts narrative with this aside. It's in parenthetics. It's like, it doesn't matter, but I have to say it. Tisrock, may he live forever. He's our king. All the while, they are perhaps grumbling about the nature of life in Tisrock's kingdom. It's easy to see God from the outside and understand claims of affection towards a king and say, God may live forever, but what's next? What's our next hope? It's feigned worship towards an unimpressive king. But to experience this king is to experience something which draws out the desires at the center of our being. And Lewis paints this in contrast to this rock when the boy Shasta meets Aslan for the first time. And unlike the citizens of Tisrock's rule, who were trained how to respond and fed these legends, Shasta knows nothing about Aslan. There is no preconceived notions or presuppositions about who Aslan is or how he is to respond. But notice what happens in this scene. He turned and saw pacing beside him, taller than the horse, a lion. It was from the lion that the light came. No one saw anything more terrible or beautiful. And of course, Shasta knew none of the true stories about Aslan, the great lion, the son of the emperor oversea, the king above all high kings in Narnia. But after one glance at the lion's face, he slipped out of the saddle and fell at its feet. He couldn't say anything but then he didn't want to say anything. And he knew he needn't say anything. When Christ Jesus introduces you to the face of a king like Aslan, 
the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when his face shines upon you, you do not offer professions of forced allegiance or shallow worship. You slip from your saddle and you worship him. And no one needs to tell you why. Because you see it. Finding light in the king's face is what frees us from sin. Finding light in this king's face is finding the provision of rain you need to live in life's season of dryness. Learning to trust in this king and hope in this kingdom is the greatest comfort of the soul and the deepest truth of God's wisdom. It is what Solomon invites you to cherish, treasure, and look for. You see, we trust in wisdom because we have seen and experienced the king who works all things. We trust in wisdom, not because we believe wisdom works. We trust in it because in Christ we have seen God work for us and all of his power, all of his sovereign might, and in Christ all of his delicate goodness is poured out for us in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us light. Light reflected off of Christ the King, which awakens our dead souls to see justice, to see beauty, to see obedience, to see delight, to see love, to see life in the face of the King. Lord, I pray that when we see you, we don't need to be told how to act towards you or how to act in public. We don't need to be told how wonderful righteousness is because we have seen it and we have been saved by it. So Lord, we pray that in seeing you as our king and in seeing the nature of your kingdom, you make us faithful to live in the kingdoms and cultures we are in now while we wait for Christ to come back. We thank you that we have a hope that wisdom is knowing that God is not yet done, that one day Christ will return and establish his kingdom forever and we wait with eager expectation for that day with full confidence, knowing that it will happen as our good king has said. We pray all this in your name, amen.